It's good. Everybody doing okay? Um, some better than others, apparently. All right, shut the back doors. Let's do this thing. Um, so when I started, uh, today's passage is going to be uh, a little bit of deja vu because if you were here uh, some weeks ago when we went through the feeding of 5,000, uh, you're kind of coming into this passage um, looking at it and maybe saying there's a lot of similarities between uh, what Jesus is going to do in the feeding of 4,000 and what he did in the feeding of 5,000. And so one of the things that uh, happened to me, and I don't know what, what your educational background was, but as I went to university, um, and you would come across in a secular university items like this, um, sometimes professors would use this as an excuse to say the similarities are so drastic between the two accounts of the feeding of 5,000 and the feeding of 4,000 that they're actually uh, one event and they're not two distinctive events. And they would kind of pass that off as saying, okay, uh, this is similar to maybe what you would see in the redundancy that would happen in mythology. And so a lot of us students taking notes, we were kind of pressed by outsiders when it came to the Bible in items like this that they would hold up similarities between the Bible and mythology as a means to discredit the Bible and to set it aside in what it has to say. And so most students who have not been prepared for that in their local church body go into a university with somebody with lots of degrees by their name, making tons of money off the government to go teach these classes. And so, like, they would go into those classes and feel like, well, is there, there is some similarity there to those things or the miracles that are going there. But what they miss is the differences. What they, and and I, I would have to come back historically and have to unlearn some of that activity because of intellectual dishonesty. And let me say, our culture is prevalent with intellectual dishonesty. Because we're not going to talk about the fact that the closest mythology you would get is Homer's Iliad, which is hundreds of years from the original document, instead of from the time of original authorship, which is Homer's Iliad. Other mythologies are not eyewitness accounts. What we see in the New Testament is eyewitness accounts. We do not have prophecies in mythology the same that we have promises and prophecies in the Old Testament hundreds of years anticipating fulfilled. And we could go on and on and on about the details of Scripture having a historicity to it that mythology simply doesn't even try to have. Okay? So we come at these, these documents not saying they are ultimately of man's origin, but that they are divine and they carry distinctive marks of the divine. Now, I, I've got to, I had to come from that from a different perspective because the mainstream cultural norm is, is to just find enough similarities to discredit them. And, and this goes on all the way through the scientific age because right now we have issues with race where we want to look at race between an Asian and an African or a white person. We'd say those are completely different peoples, even though genetically they're not. You just got a little bit more melanin, and some of you are lacking mucho melanin, all right? Like there's no, that, that there's no true difference between any of the human race. Or we can come over here and say, we're not going to emphasize wrongly the similarities or differences, or we'd say, there's no difference between a male and a female. 
We're the most unscientific people claiming to be in the scientific age. All you need to know between a male... Have you ever lived with someone of the opposite sex? Their brains are different people. Forget chromosomes. Just differences. One of them has humans come from their body. And the other doesn't, right? And so there's... Uh, thank you for that support. Um, it, there's, there's just differences. So... We want to emphasize similarities or we want to emphasize differences. And a lot of times that's for, that's for a purpose, right? The Bible is going to have the feeding of 4,000. That is so similar to the 5,000. But listen, church, the differences are there intentionally. And I, I, I can't... Okay, let, let me just give you a few of them. One, it's the feeding of 4,000, not the feeding of 5,000, Okay. Another is that the first feeding of 5,000 happened on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Our account today is going to happen on the wrong side of the tracks with the Gentiles on the other side, okay? Another is that um, the, the feeding of the 5,000 uses a specific word for basket um, that is actually, it, it's like kofinos, which is basically like a lunch, you, all of you are going to end up in a kofinos. It's where we get the word coffin from. But for them, Kofinos was like a lunch pail that they had. Think of Halloween basket. So when there's 12 basket loads left over, it was in like a lunch pail, which I said in that teaching time was actually a part of Jesus speaking to the disciples doubt, fear, and unbelief that they thought that God couldn't provide for them and he's going to pack each of them a lunchable as a witness against their doubts. The word used for basket that's going to be in this account is a different word for baskets used elsewhere in the New Testament. If you have ever uh, messed around with the Bible and you're familiar with it, y'all remember the story of when Paul is let out of the window and it says he was let out in a basket? That was not a lunch pail, okay? That is the word they used in the feeding of 4,000. It's a mass, it's, it's a laundry hamper. It's some of you have Osprey backpacks that are 80 liters big that you can backpack food somewhere. It's it's packing for a journey, which is this whole anticipation of missions. And the, the amount left over, 12, 7, it's different amounts that are left over. And those are even going to say things. Um, the word used for fish is a general word used in the feeding of 5,000. Here, in the feeding of 4,000, it's the word for sardines. Which creates theological problems for me because I hate sardines. And I'm like... So Jesus blessed them, so I guess they're okay. But if you put them on my pizza, I'm out. Right? Like, it's just, it's gross. So here's my thing. My heart for you as a pastor is that when you study Scripture, you would be so detailed-oriented that it would lead you to Christ. Because I think the details that are going to be different here today are meant to lead us to Christ and what He's doing. So, uh, without, without any more of that, uh, as kind of a runway, can we just pray and ask for God who authored this book to give us his thoughts? Uh, would you pray with me? Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you for the Normandy invasion of Jesus who reached Gentile shores on this side of the Sea of Galilee 
and unleashed his disciples to go to all the ends of the earth, even to Colorado. We're blessed to be among those who have found our highest satisfaction in you. God, help us not to hoard the bread of life to ourselves, but make us mass distributors of your goodness. Father, help us to, with your Holy Spirit's enabling, be illumined to understand what you want us to understand today, to see the details that you have packed into your text so that we might see our place in it, our purpose in it, God, our calling in it. And so, God, um, lift our eyes from secular, low views of Scripture and elevate them into the heavenly, glorious things that you've put here. And so get our expectations high. Build faith in this house and help us to be your people in this time and in this place. God, we, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. amen. Uh, John Mark, the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, if you've got a Bible, hope you do, flip over that way. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In those days, I'm going to have to come back to that, when again a great crowd, great crowd, had gathered, they had nothing to eat, and he called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've now been here with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. So, pause. We have started from a small-scale Gentile mission, which I don't know if Ty's got the, the map up, where they have went up and left Israel and went into what is modern-day Lebanon, did the long road trip thing and landed on the wrong side of the tracks, which is a predominantly Gentile area called the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. He's come into that. And the last couple accounts that we've run into is the Syrophoenician woman. That is, God is exposing the disciples to individuals who are pagans and seeing what them experiencing him is going to look like. So what we've had in the last couple of weeks, if you were here with us, which I know most of you were camping, um, but if you were here, what we, we talked about was um, that Jesus interacts with individuals. You get this Syrophoenician, this pagan woman who gets in, like like transformed by faith. Then you get the deaf mute, right? So we've had accounts of individuals in the deaf mute. Now we're going to get a massive uh, music festival level crowd. And I know that we've got multiple generations in here, so I'm going to... So Woodstock, right? Anybody? In this church, I wouldn't be surprised a couple of you didn't go, okay? Right? Live Aid, is that a different... That's a different one, right? Live Aid, nobody? Um, Lollapalooza? Coachella? Um, so think of music festivals. There's kind of like, or like full stadiums, not the Rockies, probably more like the Broncos, all right? Um, large stadiums full of people, large sporting events, thousands of people. That's, we've went from Jesus interacting with individuals, which I love about him. It's like even in the mass, midst of a huge crowd, he still sees people. As like individuals. And then, but he also cares about numbers. Like he cares about large amounts of people hearing the truth and experiencing healing because behind all of those numbers are souls. Like he, he's, he's incredibly balanced at both. 
And so he's at this huge music level, packed stadium level. Um, and, and here's the thing. If you've ever been to a 4,000 person event, the two things you've got to worry about are bathrooms and food prices. Right? Because that gets tricky. And so he goes into this place uh, around the Decapolis. We learn that in chapter 7, verse 31, that he returned to the region of the Decapolis. So here's a question that you might not be asking, but I want you to ask. How did massive crowds find out about Jesus when they don't know the Old Testament largely, are not looking for him as Messiah? Who told the massive crowds you got to check this guy out. Who was maybe the first person to go throughout the Decapolis and say, drop whatever you're doing, you've got a meeting. Look back in chapter 5. This is awesome. Chapter 5, verse 18. It's the story of the demoniac. Right? You remember him? He was the guy that was demon-possessed by a, a legion of unclean spirits inside of him and that he basically kept breaking the chains to get out the loony bin, right? And was self-mutilating himself and cutting himself and screaming out. The disciples left a massive crowd on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. They go through the storm which literally scares them to death. You remember the story of the storm? And God like drags them through the storm and we start to say, surely as they're going through this storm, they're going to be thinking, if we're leaving massive crowds over here and God's going to put us in a near-death roller coaster experience, surely God's got huge stuff for us on the other side of the storm. And what I taught you was, they come in chapter 5 to this side of the sea of God for one guy. They li Jesus literally delivers this one guy, gets back in the boat, and leaves. It says that when the disciples, they get through the storm, the disciples get off of the beach. The first guy that meets them, Matthew account says that he was naked. Like they got the French nude beach guy coming up to them as they get off of the boat. Jesus transforms that guy's life and then just pieces out. He just leaves. One guy you don't know Jesus, that makes no sense to you. But for us that know the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, it makes all the sense in the world. Now look at verse 18 of chapter 5. This is wild. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home. I love that. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. See, Jesus went and got him one missionary. He went over and got him an Apostle Paul who's going to reach Asia. He got him a strategic, surgical, he was surgical in getting him a strategic ambassador 
for the Decapolis. Someone who was uniquely connected and prepared to do everything to preach the gospel to the Decapolis. God's got a unique calling for you too. He's got a Decapolis for you that he surgically and strategically has set you apart for. So go back and, and let's see where we're at. Chapter 8. It says that a great crowd had gathered about him. Here's the result. We can say of probably many others, but at least the demon-possessed man, is that a massive crowd. Jesus, uh, if this was in our terms, we'd say Jesus is trending on Twitter. Um, he's number one on iTunes, right? He's on the front page of Rolling Stone, New York Times. He's box office. He's, he's got more Google hits than anybody else. He's packing stadiums. He's must-see television. I mean, do you understand the draw to Jesus that is happening in the beginning of chapter 8? Here's one thing that you might just notice about Jesus. He is simultaneously the most attractive personality and the most polarizing person in all of history. Like literally, where you land on Jesus divides human history. He's simultaneously the most attractive personality and the most polarizing person you could ever meet. That's still true today. 4,000 people gathering around him, that's hard to pull off when you got villages of 100, maybe 200. What we likely see here in this passage from a scholarly perspective is that these are the nations coming to him where he is. And I, I've been banking on this passage. I, I've challenged you to read it. Uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, it, it's just mind-blowing. Isaiah 49, 6 says that God says in the Old Testament, it is too small a thing for the God of the universe just to save the Jews. That God had from the beginning intentionality to get the Irish and people from Zimbabwe people from Cambodia. It's too small a thing for how great our God is that it would just be about, He is a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49, 6 says, and He has the ends of the earth in mind. And here we see Jesus taking these Jewish boys, His disciples, on a Gentile mission boot camp. He's training them to see Him Jesus goes out of his way to reach people that are far from him. And he's teaching his disciples in the Decapolis, with the Gentiles, largely in this crowd, that the disciples of Jesus are always going to have to go out of their way to reach people that are far from him. Many of the people God has called you to reach with the gospel are not easy access or simple conversations. Amen? He's showing them that he's willing to go out of his way to reach people that are far from him. So here's a question, church. Just from the context of what's happening here, when's the last time you went out of your way to reach somebody that was far from Jesus? 
Uh, let me put it in a different way. When was the last time you were inconvenienced because you were obeying what Jesus told you to do and witnessing to somebody you didn't naturally want to witness to? Talk to me about the last time you were inconvenienced doing the thing that God called you to do. Tell me the last time it cost you. Tell me the last time you got uncomfortable. Here's the kicker for us as Americans. When's the last time you made time for someone you didn't have time for? Because a lot of us can throw money at a lot of things. When's the last time you made it's not that you had the time, you carved the time out. You made the time for someone who was far from God. Because we can always pack our schedule with so much stuff that we don't got no time for the things of God. Amen? Is that just my schedule or is that your schedule too? So talk to me about when you were inconvenienced last. Because here's the thing. Jesus is teaching them that they're going to have to go out of their way to reach people far from God. Here's another thing that I would say that's going to happen in church history here. The Gentile mission and the great commission to make disciples of all nations, Jesus is not just going to randomly drop that on them in Matthew 28. Like, he's, he's preparing them for the end of the earth thing. Like, it's not as though... They grew up around bad teaching among the Pharisees who misread the Old Testament because Gentile missions is in the Old Testament. But Jesus is unlearning so much of what they're doing. He's not just going to drop the Great Commission on them. He's prepping them. He's preparing them. He's letting them experience the Syrophoenician woman. He's letting them experience the deaf mute. He's taking them to crowds and saying, this, boys, this is what it's about to be like. People from all nations coming to get the bread. He's preparing them for ministry. He's giving them a vision. And that vision sometimes is going to require them to unlearn some of the teachings of the Old Testament they may have grown up with amongst the Pharisees. So that he might not just unlearn them certain things, but he might also teach them new things. Now, in verse 1 it says, In those days... There's a multiple-day operation going on here. At least we learn from Matthew 15, which is a parallel passage, that there was healing going on and teaching. These are the two main emphasis, healing and teaching. All right? Now, one thing that um, is happening here that we might observe is that when people get healed, they usually don't stick around. Like... Um, have you ever been sick and had to go to the hospital or had a major surgery? And once you got better from that surgery, did anybody say, you know what I'd love to do? I'm just going to stay a couple more days at this hospital. Only cost me $4 million. The food is amazing. I would love to taste nothing for two more days. Right? Like when you get done with the hospital... Anybody, like even before you're better, you're like, I'm going home, right? Like they're like, no, you need to stay in this bed. It's like, you're going home. It's like nobody, once they get better from what is ailing their body, just is like, you know, I just want to take a little vacation here at the hospital and just hang around a few extra days. So after these people are being healed, 
What's anchoring them to stick around? Teaching. The healing is a runway for the ultimate thing, the teaching, to really take off. He heals them as a sign to point to the teaching, the message of the kingdom of God. Do you see that? Now, here's the thing. Have you ever been in a, like a college lecture and sat under a lecture and said, you know what I wish this would happen with this college lecture? I wish it'd go three days long, baby. Right? What's that guy from Dry Eyes? Is it Ben Stein? What's that guy's name with the monotone voice? Dry Eyes. That guy for three days. Just imagine it, right? Who is coming and saying, I wish my meetings at work went for three days? Especially those ones that should have been an email, right? Nobody. But let's just pause here and think about Jesus. Jesus is so compelling that when he begins to teach, people stay for three days. And I'll, I'll be straight with you. My sermons are not there. You're already looking at your watch. I get it. I'm not him. When Jesus is in the house teaching, you could stay there forever. Did you notice in this passage, they haven't eaten for three days. It's so good they forget to eat, Lee Petty. That brother ain't serving unless there's tacos. Alright? Three days not eating, sitting in the house. You have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? Jesus, in the passage, is the one who brought up the food, not them. Think about this. It's Jesus who pushes pause on the teaching to be concerned about the fact they haven't eaten. That's awesome. They are locked in. I put it like this. Have you ever like, read a book? And when the book is over, you're like, man, I wish there was just like one more chapter. Or have you ever been to a I got I know you guys don't read. Okay, have you ever been to a movie and the move the credits roll and the characters are so good and, and it's just it's been such a good like hieroglyphic to see reality and truth and you, you love the story and you want to know what happens after and like you know happily ever after just not good enough and as the credits are rolling you're like man I hope they make one more. Anybody? You ever been to a movie and it was so good you just you hope that post-credits there's an extra clip? That's how they are with Jesus' teachings. They just is like, Jesus, just keep going. I can't get enough. That's our Jesus. That's how good he is. That's how great the teaching is. Now, let's say something about three days. Three days going without food is possible for hu Americans, just to let you know. You can go three days without food. It's not a big deal. All right? Some of us have never done it. It's a mythological land out there of going three days without food. But let me just say it's possible. It's not even that severe. People fast all the time for three days. I mean, it's not Afghanistan, all right? I know there's some comparison here. But here's the thing. Even in something that is not severe, God cares about them. Like God cares about them. God cares about how uncomfortable they are that they've gone three days, 
No God in all of history, no so-called God in all of history has cared more about people than the God of the Bible. Most humans don't care about humans at the level that the God of the Bible does. There's kind of two dangers that we run into in ministry. One is, one danger is, is that uh, we, some of us care so much about spiritual needs that we can tend to overlook physical needs that people have. Others are in a different danger. They care for and they put on the prayer list all the physical needs that people have, but they tend to never get around actual biggest spiritual needs in people's lives. These are two dangers. One thing we notice about God in the Bible is that He cares about all needs, especially eternal ones. Like, even though Jesus is going to say, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He's going to put spiritual needs first. He's not going to ever ignore physical needs. God cares both about our physical and our spiritual needs. Jesus cares. Let me, let me put it this way. The word here from compassion is a strong word. Here's how I would put it. It says, Jesus says, I have compassion. It's, it's Jesus saying, I am gutted. I am rocked. Like, Jesus is, does not have a dead heart that does not move. Like, Jesus' heart is moved for people. Talk to me about your heart. Because see, here's the thing. Why would Jesus articulate or verbalize his compassion for people? Here's why he did it. Because he wants his disciples to enter into his heart for them. Jesus verbalizes, I have compassion, because he's going to want to get his disciples to enter into that compassion. So talk to me, you who claim to believe in Jesus and to be called as his disciples. Talk to me about your compassion. Do you have God's heart for the nations? Do you have compassion for people? Or did somewhere along the way did you become crusty and hard? And you don't care. Jesus has compassion and he verbalizes it so that we might enter into it. He calls his church, and this is what we'll see here. He calls his disciples to get involved with what he's compassionate about. They lack. They have needs. They are going to perish on the way unless we step in. And is this not just from the Genesis account of taking creation further to the Great Commission? Isn't it just isn't it just our God who loves to employ us in His mission? He loves to use us. He loves to work through us as, the, as we are the glove on the divine hand. Like He's ordained to include us because He loves us, His children, and He loves to use us to love other people who are, as verse 3 says, that they came from far away. 
God sees the extent from far away that people came to seek Him. And He's going to make sure that those people who came from far away are going to be taken care of. And He's going to use His church to do it. Okay, so look in verse 3. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint or perish on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How? This is like a question we ask all the time in our elder meetings. How are we going to do this? How can one feed, here's a really interesting phrase, these people? With bread here in this desolate place. In this desolate place. They are looking at the desolate nature of their environment. Not the abundant provision of their Savior. So here's, here's what they do. They go, the disciples go practical. They get real. They analyze the problem. They got stats. They get pragmatic. They get logical. Here's what the disciples are like a ton of churches. They're realists. Like we cannot, in our own faculties, in our own abilities, we cannot meet these needs. They get real. Um, Some of us are not, uh, (laughs) like when we come to problems that are bigger than us, We're so good at analyzing the problem until we're stressed to the maximum amount. Does anybody in here like me feel like sometimes when you come to problems, if you're not stressing out the maximum amount problem, maximum amount possible, like you feel like you're not even like looking at the problem enough? It's like, you know what, I need to look at this four more times so that I can just stress out a little bit more about it. Right? I'm not anxious enough about it. Let me just kind of like, uh, let me just stay here and look at it until I'm completely freaked out. Right? That's what they do. I get this way. Listen, church. uh, I'm trying to be as transparent as possible. I get this way. I see things that God is calling me to do. And I know his word a little bit. Right? Like I know a little bit of his scripture. I know God has taken care of me in the past. Anybody else? Come on. Anybody know that God's taken care of you in the past? He's helped you out? Anybody know a little bit of Bible? Anybody know just a little bit of Bible in here? But we come to a problem, and some problems hit me, and I run. Before I ever take it to God, I go straight to my own strength. Anybody? Despite the fact I know he fed 5,000. Or the exodus and manna in the desert. It's just, it's, it's like my sin proclivity, when I'm faced with something big, I just, I can strangle it in stress. And I stress my, like, I just think my own strength is going to be better than the God who has helped me all along. And I do exactly what they did. I forget all of God's provision. I forget all the promises of God. And I just pull my hair out. It's not mature in Christ. It's not holy to stress. Do you hear me? Stress will kill you. Taking it to the foot of the cross will give you life. You're doing one or the other. 
They could justify being practical, but they're just wrong. Jesus then comes in. Well, here's even the thing that makes me ask. Why would, here's a question. Why would they not bring up the past feeding or the exodus or even turn back and say, Jesus, you said you got compassion on them. Sounds like a personal problem to me. Right? Why would they not just like anything? Here's kind of where I, I'm going to land on this. This is my personal perspective. Um, so take this for what it is. It, the disciples call them these people. Jesus just said they're from far away. These people. How are we going to feed these people? Right? What, they need bacon? Like, see, the feeding of the 5,000 was on the Jewish side. If Jesus feeds these people, now we're feeding pagans. Sure, God does miracles for us, but he ain't going to do miracles for them. If Jesus feeds them the 4,000 the way that he fed the 5,000, it signals to them that God's going to treat them just like he treats them. If God does this for them like he did the 5,000, it's going to be like God's treating them just like he does us. I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. Verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? You know, we talked about this last time. Um, start with what you have. Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, this is a signal if, for those that are um, aware that God uses numbers in the Bible, oftentimes strategically. The, word, the number seven is the number for completeness or perfection or fulfilled. How many do you have? You got seven loaves. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, which I've always said that any, both the feeding of 5,000 and this one is always peculiar. Because imagine only having seven, you're one of the only brothers in the whole 4,000 that for three days you've been hoarding bread. And you're thinking, this is my snack on the way home because ain't no fast food joint on the way home. And you see, how many do you got? And you bring it forward to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I love bread. Just starts eating. It's like, you guys figure the rest of that out. You know, it's like you kind of step back. Like, what is Jesus doing here? Here's the other thing. Somebody in the crowd had to risk going without so that others could have. The people with seven loaves in the crowd likely had no idea what he's going to do with it. So if I say, this is, I haven't eaten for three days. I mean, put this in the context of you. You hadn't eaten in three days, and you've been saving seven loaves. Or maybe you're, you got one loaf out of the seven. You have to risk going without to give Jesus your loaf. Right? So others might have. He brings it forward. So I just, for whatever reason, I just see seven Subway sandwiches. You know what I'm saying? Because the loaves are in there. And they bring the baguettes forward. And they risk. Here's what I believe Jesus is doing with the number seven. In using a number that means complete or fulfilled. He's preaching with numbers. 
See, on the other side, it was 12 loaves and 12 basketfuls, right? And he, he comes forward, which has a picture of administration. 12 is a number for administration and the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples that are going to leave with the Lunchable after. They bring seven loaves forward to say, my mission's not complete until I bring in the whole church and all the Gentiles are saved as well. See, this is why I'm telling you, you have to pay attention to the details between the two stories. I believe Jesus is preaching to them that I'm not going to quit until I get my whole church from the ends of the earth. How many of you got? Church, you got to start with what you have, and it's often going to mean you're going to have to risk going without so that you can give to Jesus that he might do abundantly more with it than you ever could. The other thing that I love about this story, do you realize that the blessing of the fish is separate? Like, look down in this verse. How many do you have? He said seven, six. And he directed the crowds to sit down on the ground. Randy, I'm always going to point this out. Before Jesus does a miracle, he does organization and administration. There is nothing unholy about administration and organization. We're trying to organize our house churches right now, believing that organizing them is going to prepare for God to do something miraculous in them. Right? God's going to have to do the miraculous in our house churches, but we're going to organize them. Lee is trying to organize our Awana here, believing that God might do miraculous stuff like save some kids. Maybe even a few parents, right? There are people in here that help in our office, and our, you know, Alicia does a ton of our administrative stuff. We have a ton of organizational set them down in numbers to prepare for in anticipation of what God's going to do in the miraculous. These are not opposed to each other. He sets them down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having give thanks, he broke them and gave to his disciples to set before the people. Jesus does the miracle. We do the distribution. Here's what is happening amongst the people. They're sitting down on the ground, passively receiving the miracle Jesus did being passed out by the disciples. Does that sound like anything to you? I mean, you've got to be in church a long time to get this little, this little nugget. They're on the ground sitting passively, doing nothing to deserve it. Jesus is doing the miracle, and then he's distributing what, the bread through his church. This is awesome. Having good things, he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Church, here's what we do with the gospel of Jesus dying for sins and rising from the dead. Here's what we do, church, with the Word of God and the witness that God has done in your life and your testimony. You set it before people. God done something powerful in your life? Set it before somebody. Here's what the church does. God, the Word, has come to save us. He has given us Himself. Church, here's what your job is. Set it before people. Every chance you get, every conversation you can, set it, they set it before the crowd. Verse 7, then they had a few small fish. Again, this is the translation of sardines, which, whatever. And having blessed them, he said to them that he should set them before them. What's so wild about this is, 
They gave Jesus the bread. He broke it, gave thanks to it, and it started to get distributed amongst the 4,000. Somebody in the crowd was hoarding sardines. It's like, yo, man, give him that too. Right? They didn't come at the same time. Some of us have been there in our faith, right? We gave Jesus a little, and he did like massively more than we thought he was going to do. And it compelled us to give him a little more. Like, it's stages. Like, they don't, they didn't, somebody out there didn't come all at once. It's like, you know, if Jesus is doing this with bread, you know, what the, what, what's he going to do with filet mignon over here? All right? And whoever in here thinks that sardines are filet mignon, we got other things to pray for you about. A few small boys, he blessed them, and he said that, that these also should be set before them. Verse 8, I love this. And they ate them and were satisfied. They were sat. I love that word, satisfied. This is a word that means they are complete. It pictures exactly what the number seven is saying. It says that they are whole. That literally nothing else could be added to them to make them any better. Like not one ounce. The tank is full. This is not like you in college filling up your car with $5 in gas and trying to coast down the hills. You know what I'm saying? How much? $5 would get you nothing today, by the way. How much would, Ronnie, how much was gas back in your day? Um, did y'all have cars? I'm just kidding. Y'all remember, y'all remember being so poor, you're putting fumes into the tank, just hoping you can get to the next spot, Right? Like, filling up the whole tank of gas was some, like, mythological thing rich people did, right? This is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not giving you pennies to keep the bottom of the tank just enough full. Jesus is saying, we're going to take it to the brim. You're going to be completely complete and satisfied. You're going to be whole. What he does in their bellies is anticipating what he wants to do in their hearts. It says they were satisfied. They lacked nothing. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven hampers or baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples. And he went to the district of Dalamanutha or Magdala. Here's where I want to end and Maybe finish years. Talk to me about your gas tank. Is it satisfied? Is it full? Are you living on fumes? Going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing? Because listen, largely Gentile audience, Jesus came to fill you. He's not done or complete with his mission until all of his church is fully satisfied in him. He's the bread of life. In church, our job is to distribute that bread as widely as we possibly can. I need to say this to us and say it to myself as often as I can. Church is not a hobby. 
It's life or death. Church is not your hobby. Church is a military operation to evacuate souls out of hell. It's a military operation to evacuate souls out of hell. If you're treating it like a hobby, you are doing something to the fame and renown of the God that you claim to serve. And there are others that will suffer. John comes, and there's a beautiful teaching in the Gospel of John that says that Jesus is the bread of life. I hope that you get some space this week that you would just meditate on that passage about how Jesus is the bread of life. Foretold in Exodus, fulfilled in person. And in the feeding of 5,000, we learn that he is, Jesus is the better Moses. And that he satisfies the Jews in ways that Moses and the law never could. But here, not only is he leading a better Exodus, but here with the 4,000, he is the savior of the world who won't stop until his church is complete and he gets every one of his children. Until every one of them is so satisfied in him that they lose their appetite for sin. So here's my, my word for you, church. Jesus is your bread given from heaven to satisfy your soul. The baskets left over tell us that he's more than enough. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to go into a time of communion. Just between maybe you and God right now, talk about maybe with Him where the satisfaction of your soul is. Talk to Him about the gas tank. And if you're empty, just confess you're empty. And ask for Him to fill you. If you're half and half, you're half and half. And if you're in here and God has just filled you with His Holy Spirit and His Word and He has fulfilled this satisfaction in you, I want you right now to praise Him. No matter who you are in here or where you're at in here, would you have a conversation with God about your satisfaction? Would you have a conversation about your gas tank? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. God, you have taught us that it is you who gives the whole earth their daily bread. And that there is none who are satisfied today in their bellies or in their souls. 
that didn't get that from you. So hallowed be thy name. God, I pray right now uh, for my brothers and sisters in here who are just running on fumes. And they've been stuffing all kinds of junk in the gas tank. And God, they're just running out. God, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit in new and refreshing ways? Would you empower them? Would you satisfy them? God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here also who, God, they've been coming to you and you've been just pouring yourself out to them and their tank is full, God. Praise you. God, we thank you that there's people in here whose lives are full of your glory and full of your joy and full of your life such that it just keeps spilling out on their neighbors and friends. God, we praise you that a life and life abundant is possible. Some of us have walked in it before. Some of us have walked in it now. But God, we just point back to you and give you all the praise and the glory. God, we thank you for sending Jesus the bread of heaven to die for our sins and to bury them and rise that we might have that new life. If there's one even here that's never trusted you with their sins, trusted you with their life, found life in you, found purpose in you, God, would you call them now out of darkness and into light. Give them boldness to call upon your name and to be saved. Holy Spirit, come and do all of this work. And do it in the name of Jesus. God, we pray that. Everyone said, amen. If you guys want to come, we're going to uh, do communion. Go ahead, Matt.